waiting for your presence to fall on our hearts and in our lives and waiting to sing the new song that you give us, a song of praise and a song of thanksgiving. And as we look to your word this morning, God, would you open our hearts to that that word that is just for us, that speaks of your presence and your power and your grace in our lives. And we will thank you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Good morning. Add my happy Father's Day to you all who are here as fathers. Uh, It is good to be together and to worship God, who is a loving Heavenly Father. He's a great example for us to follow and to live up to. We are continuing our Faith Works series as we're going through the letter of James, and we're moving towards the end where we'll be wrapping it up next week. If you've been with us through the series, though, you know that James has been encouraging us to pay attention to the fact that in this world, there are really two paths that we can choose to follow. There are two kinds of wisdom that help us to understand the kind of life that God would have us lead. There's a wisdom that comes from above. There's a wisdom that comes from God that gives us an insight into the kind of people that he's created us and called us to be. And then there's a wisdom from this world that wants to get us off track of the path that God would have us follow, that leads us down these rabbit trails of things that we think are going to bring us happiness and satisfaction and wholeness, but in the end, they always end up disappointing us. Last week, we looked at the beginning of chapter 5, where James brought some pretty strong language against people who want to put their trust in wealth and possessions and and wanted to hoard things in life, to, to cling to the things of this world, thinking that somehow that's going to make them happy, because he said that those kinds of attitudes lead to systems of inequity and oppression and injustice in the world. And today he's going to continue in chapter 5 where he's going to talk about rather than being hoarders in life, he wants to encourage us to think about being harvesters in life. If you've ever been to a farm, you know that farming takes a lot of patience and hard work and trust that the weather's going to produce the rain that it needs to and that the crops are going to come through at the end of the season. There's a lot of work that goes into it, but there's a lot of patience and faith and trust that the harvest is going to be there in the end. If you want to turn with me into the letter of James in the very back of your New Testament, we're going to pick it up in verse 7, where he's going to encourage us to think about life like a farmer. He says, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm. Because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. See, the main point that James is wanting us to take away as he's wrapping up his teaching on these two kinds of pathways in life is that patience and perseverance, if you remember all the way back in the beginning, was the essential ingredients of developing a life of faith. 
It is only through patience and perseverance, standing firm in the face of challenges and difficulty, that God can build his character in us. Because we often have to go through the hard times to allow God to bring us to wholeness and completion. Scholars suggest that the name Lord here, often in the Old Testament, referred to God himself. But in the context of James' letter and talking about the Lord's coming, it's no doubt he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is risen from the dead. And because we know that Jesus is alive, he has promised that he will come again. In the face of his second coming, we know that his return gives us courage and confidence now to face all of life's challenges because we know, as we've just been singing, that the victory has already been won. Now, while in the previous section, James was concerned with the wealthy landowners who were creating oppressive systems for the poor and the the servants who were working on their properties, scholars suggest that here he's also wanting to turn to the poor and the less fortunate who are part of the church as well and saying that they need to exhibit patience even in the midst of the oppression that they were experiencing, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their life challenges. They weren't to grumble and complain against other people, but they were to take on patience and the character of God, trusting that justice was on its way because God had already overcome the powers of this world in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They suggest that we too know that the second coming of Jesus will include setting the oppressed free, overcoming the upside down systems of this world so that all those who have experienced wrong and suffering in this world will experience justice and rightness and all the broken pieces of our lives will be put back together. But the waiting is a long process, isn't it? And in its, difficult, in, in its difficult circumstances, there's temptation to become critical of those around us, to blame other people for our suffering and our difficulty. There's a desire for, for justice that can give way to a desire for vengeance. But we're reminded that Jesus is the one who is coming, and he suffered patiently and quietly the injustices of this world, and therefore he comes to judge the hearts of all mankind. As a very practical, everyday illustration, James refers to the farmer who waits patiently for the harvest, for the autumn and the spring rains to come so that the the crops will be watered and that they will produce what they are so patiently hoping for. Apparently, in the eastern Mediterranean, there were two seasons of rain, one in the autumn and one in the spring, and both of them were were needed for the crops to, to come to full maturity. One commentator suggests that James has a double emphasis here, that it not only takes patience uh, to to wait for the rains to come, but also we can never always count on the the seasons of life, and, and the seasons come and seasons go, and we have to trust that God will bring about his completion and his wholeness in its due season. Yet the waiting is hard psychologically, isn't it? It's hard to wait. It's hard to be patient, especially in our world where we have microwave ovens and cars that go 80 miles an hour on the freeway, and we're so used to getting what we want now. The idea of waiting is anathema to us in our culture. In the presence of the vagaries of weather that determine whether the crops will come, the farmer is helpless to to control the rain, and, and we too are often helpless to control what is happening in the circumstances of our life. In the same way, Christians and the Christian community has to learn to wait patiently for the coming of the Lord, not only his second coming return, but for the present power of the Lord to work his healing and his wholeness in our lives and in our community. And we've experienced the challenge 
of this patience again this week, haven't we, in the wake of the Orlando shootings? The worst terror attack on American soil since 9-11. And not from without, but from within our own country. We're reminded again that suffering and disorder and evil are a part of this world. Our hearts break and go out to all of those victims of the shooting and the family and the loved ones who are now asking, why? How could this happen? It doesn't make any sense. But James tells us that we need to have patient endurance in the midst of life's challenges, in the midst of life's difficulties, in the midst of the disorder and the chaos and the evil of this world, we can have patient endurance because we know that Jesus has already overcome the evils of this world. And his compassion and his mercy is coming with him in justice. As possible, we need to prevent such tragedies from tearing us apart and instead work even harder at demonstrating our faith and our love in action in spite of the evils of this world. That's why he says in verse 9, don't grumble and complain against each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. He's on his way. We don't have to question whether uh, it's if, but it's when. And that's why healthy community relationships are essential. Healthy societies are built on love and faith in action and trusting that a lack of patience leads to disorder and disharmony. And we have to remember that Jesus levels the playing field for all of us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. None of us has a leg up on any of our brothers and sisters. We are called to build one another up, to to encourage one another, to be representatives of Jesus' compassion and his mercy and his grace, to be peacemakers, to be shalom builders in this world. Complaining about things in the meantime doesn't lead to the peace and the righteousness that God desires. It doesn't do anything to alleviate the problem. How many of you, by complaining, ever achieved anything but just making ourselves more upset? When the true judge arrives, James tells us, true justice will arrive with him. And he reminds us that this judge judges the heart. And therefore, our starting place always has to be looking within ourselves to judge our own heart, to see how we are doing on the path. Are we following the wisdom from above or are we allowing the circumstances of our lives and the difficulties and our own lack of patience to cause us to be grumbling and complaining, maybe even against God himself? We also have to remember, James tells us, in the meantime, while we're waiting, those who assume the name of Jesus as their banner, those who claim to be followers and disciples of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and as their master, will most likely experience greater suffering and difficulty in this world, just like the prophets of old, he said. Life isn't going to be easy. Life is difficult. And becoming a Christian doesn't guarantee that life is all of a sudden going to be a bed of roses. In fact, you might be stepping out of the frying pan into the fire because you're following a guy in this world that this world says is going the wrong way. You're following somebody that this world says is is judgmental and oppressive and bigoted, and your faith is part of the problem. And we are moving forward more and more in a a culture where they don't understand what we believe and they don't understand how we can say that we can follow this man, Jesus, and that somehow that's a good thing. 
Look at the examples of the prophets, James says. We look at these people who stood up and said, I speak for God, and they were ridiculed and they were persecuted by their own people. They weren't accepted. We don't praise them now because of their easy life and their great success. We say that they were blessed by God because they persevered through all of the difficulty and the challenges that they faced by standing up and saying they stood with God and for God. Their perseverance and their faith to the end through challenges and difficulties is what makes them stand out as examples of faith. See, the idea that true blessedness in this world is a reward for those who endure through trials and difficulties and suffering is widely taught throughout the New Testament. And it's even found on the lips of Jesus himself. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Verses 10 through 12, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says, Rejoice and be glad, because your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is not an easy road. This is not a get-rich-quick scheme. The story of Job is an example of patient endurance through suffering, keeping the faith that God is good all the time. You guys remember the story of Job, right? He's the poor victim of this heavenly test that Satan wants to do with God. Satan approaches God in heaven and says, oh yeah, this guy Job, he's righteous, but just because you bless him, you give him all the good stuff. You take away his riches and his relationships and all the good stuff in life, and surely he's going to curse you to your face. Because God, people just love you because you're a, a heavenly vending machine, right? You give blessings and people love you, but you take away those blessings and they'll curse you to your face. And so the whole story of Job goes on and God says, okay, let's see. Let's put Job's faith to the test. And so he takes away his wealth. He takes away his family. He takes away his health. Until even his wife is going, just curse God and die. And Job says, no. I don't understand why this is happening. I'm not happy about it. I'm, in fact, I'm upset and I'm angry at God. But I'm not going to give up my faith that God is good. And somewhere in the midst of all of this, there's a reason and an answer. And someday I'm going to find out. And so Job comes to us through the centuries as a story of a man of faith and perseverance, even through life's difficulties, as a man who endured to the end and never gave up on his faith. Scholars say in verse 11, this phrase that says, you have seen what the Lord finally brought about is is not accurately translated. Instead, it should say, the end of the Lord you saw which is kind of a weird phrase for us, but, but this word, the end, in the Greek is telos, which doesn't mean like end period of the sentence, but the, the end goal, the, the purpose of a thing, the, the reason why it exists. And he's saying that in the context of James' letter to Christian believers, he's saying, you've seen the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the completion of God's salvation for the whole world. This plan lived out in the life of a believer, as James has been pointing out over and over again, leads to a life of faith in action where we we base our lives on sound teaching and the example of Jesus that has come to us through the apostles' teaching and through the word of God. The The successful pursuit of this faith in action, even through seasons of great difficulty and challenge, lead to the true experience of what it means to live a blessed life. In fact, 
Even our suffering itself can be used by God to fill us with his character and to shape us and mold us to bring us to completion and wholeness and maturity. A picture of men and women who understand the dynamic of faith and deeds, who are pursuing peace and not disorder, who are actively building God's shalom in their own relationships, in their own communities, and in the world itself. You see, the ultimate purpose and plan of God in Christ Jesus is that his compassion and his mercy, which has been poured out for you and for me, will be on full display, not only in Jesus Christ, but will become the foundation of love upon which we build our relationships and our families and our churches and our communities. And ultimately, it's that love that will bring restoration to the whole creation. But, he's saying, for us, this will require great patience because it doesn't happen quickly. It's like planting crops and waiting for them to grow and hoping that the rain is going to come. As we've talked about moving forward as a church and going into this new season of life and going on this journey of faith with Jesus, we've talked about that African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone, right? But if you want to go far, go together. And we have said that we as a church, we want to go far. We want to, we want to make a big impact for the kingdom of God in this community, in this world. And so we are taking our time and we are being patient, asking God to lead us, to say, God, what would you have us do? How would you lead us forward as a faith community? What is it that we need to give up out of our own wants and our own desires and our own preferences to make room for the spirit of God to lead us in a new way? to to reinvigorate us, to to revitalize us to be a church that is on mission with Jesus, where we're seeing the lost found and the the healing the hurts of our community, and we're seeing people growing in their faith and coming to a real transforming walk with Jesus Christ. It takes patience for us to do this together. It's not gonna happen overnight. Real church is not add water and stir. It's the long, slow process of planting seeds, carefully nurturing them, waiting for the rain of the Holy Spirit to water them and watching those seeds grow. Each one of us is a seed in God's field that he wants to grow to produce a harvest of righteousness. But it takes our patient work and effort to make sure that we're on the right path and that we're following the wisdom that comes from above and not the wisdom of this world. We have to take time to understand and appreciate our differences as people. None of us are the same. We're all different, and that's a good thing. Our differences make us better together. That's why we have to understand that the the body of Christ is made up of all different kinds of members, each part, each person doing their part to make up the whole. On staff right now, we're taking time to go through some exercises where we're looking at personality profiles, and we've just done the Myers-Briggs, and we're going to look at spiritual gifts and, and some other kinds of assessments. And the whole point is we're talking about how we're each created and wired differently, but that as we come together as a team, God can do more through us collectively than he can through each one of us individually. And it's been really fun to just hear people talk about their own profile and how God has uniquely created and wired them to be a certain way and how those different personalities and gifts come together in, in very fun and unique ways. You see, as we become people of compassion and mercy and justice in this world, excuse me, 
not only in word, but also in action and in deed, in a faith that is demonstrated in the lifestyle that we live together. We carry on the legacy of Jesus Christ and the mission of Christ as we demonstrate ourselves to be his true disciples. Those who follow Jesus are to live today, James is saying, as if the kingdom of God were already here, and it is, and it is not yet. The return of Jesus gives hope to all who are suffering and to all who are struggling and even to the craziness of the world that we experience each day and each week and every year. While we wait, we have the perspective of the farmer who patiently waits during the growing season, knowing that it is the only way to get to harvest time. See, our destiny, we know, right, is to be with Christ. Our destiny is assured because Jesus is alive. The the fact of the resurrection gives us confidence in the hope of the second coming. The second coming isn't if, but when, because we know that Jesus is alive. And in great patience, then, James invites us to shift our attention from what is happening around us to what God is doing within us. And as each one of us are willing to do the hard work of looking inside our own hearts, we understand that our hearts are the soil in which God is wanting to plant the seed of his word, to water it through the the breath of his spirit, and to bring us to new life in him. Each one of us have to take the time to look at our own hearts first. But if we're willing to do that, if we're willing to go on this journey with Jesus and allow the wisdom from above to put us on the right path, God says no matter what comes, the good, the bad, and the ugly, at the end, there's a harvest. And when you get there, you will be truly blessed. And that is a harvest that is worth betting your life on. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your son Jesus, who bet his life on your harvest, who gave his own life to be crucified and killed and to be put into the ground like a seed, but that you raised him to new life and and, and that the life that comes from him now invigorates our hearts and that same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in us. God, we ask that you would continue to speak to us through your spirit. As we spend time in your word, would you open your word to us so that it becomes the seed that produces a great harvest of righteousness in our lives. And we will thank you and praise you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.